All right. Thanks for joining us. I am Liz Brailsford, the World Affairs Council President and CEO. I am so happy to see this room. Happy New Year. Happy 2022. Can you believe it? And now it's almost February. I am shocked at that. It's funny how fast the days go. And this is our first in-person event of the year. So yay. We want to be in person. We want to be together. We are hearing from you. We ourselves are craving that human connection. We are hoping to do more and more of this. And so just bear with us as we're getting constant feedback from our membership and external parties and stakeholders and things like that. But know that we want to be in person. Sometimes it's a speaker or a sponsor that wants to cancel or postpone. But we are doing everything we can to get back to normal, get back in person. I want to see your beautiful faces, your friendly, supportive, beautiful faces. So thank you very much. So I would like to start by thanking our sponsor of the Global Forum program, and that's the Billingsley Company, Lucy and Henry Billingsley. Thank you very much. They couldn't be here this evening, but we are so grateful to them. Also, we are committed to the health and safety of all of our members within our capacity. So if you are curious about what our practices are, please head to our website at DFW World if you want to keep yourself up at night. Exciting reading there. You know, you know do, what you, you do what you can. Uh, our next global forum program is on February 17th, and we are going to be having a conversation with FC Dallas's Dan Hunt. We are very excited about that. I don't know if everyone knows. Hopefully you do, but we are trying to get the FIFA World Cup here in 2026 and he's FC Dallas's president, and so we are going to have an intimate global forum conversation with him, and he is going to tell you all about why we should be hosting the FIFA World Cup in 2026 and what it can do for our business and economy here in Dallas. So please come to that. We also will be having on Tuesday, February 22, another in-person program with Shalonda Spencer. She's the executive director of the Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, and she's going to be talking about the importance of involving women in the national security space of diverse backgrounds, particularly women of color and uh, in national security and foreign policy. So come to that. That's a general public program. We hope to see you there. I got to see her in D.C. with Rachel and Kirsten, and we were at the World Affairs Councils of America National Conference in November. That's where I used to be in D.C., and then it was lovely not to lift a finger that whole week. It was fabulous. And anyway, we got to see Shalanda Spencer there, and she was great, so I'm looking forward to that. A reminder to silence your phones, especially you two. I'm going to be on stage. <laughs> silence your phones, any devices that you may have. Thank you very much. And it's a reminder for me to do that when I get back to my seat. I would like to mention also that many of you have been our loyal supporters and friends and community members for a very long time. And so you probably know our beloved Rachel Vogel. 
Rachel Vogel has been with the council for over 10 years as our vice president of programs most recently for the last couple of years. She has been an invaluable team member, loyal friend, contributor to our council, team member. I can't think of a person with a more beautiful disposition and team member than, than she is. So Rachel, we are so grateful and happy for you. It's hard to believe after 10 years, and I've only known Rachel for a year, and I keep crying. So if that tells you anything, Rachel, thank you so much. We are sad but happy for you. Rachel's actually, we're switching places. I'm leaving DC, she's going to DC. Okay, so now to get to the most important thing of the evening, I'm gonna invite our moderator, David McCloskey, in a moment to come up to the podium to introduce our guest speaker, Mark Polymeropoulos. David is a former CIA analyst and former consultant at McKinsey & Company. While at the CIA, he wrote regularly for the President's Daily Brief, delivered classified testimony to congressional, congressional oversight committee, committees, and all manner of government officials. He worked in CIA field stations across the Middle East, throughout the Arab Spring and conducted a rotation in the Counterterrorism Center focused on the Jihad in Syria and Iraq. During his time at McKinsey, David advised national security, aerospace, and transportation clients on a range of strategic and operational issues. A man of many talents. David spoke for our council and in Terabing Books last fall, and his novel, Damascus Station, is also in sale on sale over here, along with Mark's book. So check it out after the program. Get it signed. Get both books. You won't be disappointed. And I'm so happy we have two experts with us this evening. I think it's going to be an exciting conversation, just a conversation that we're going to have. Thank you for being here, and I welcome you to the stage. Thank you, Liz. Um, so our guest tonight, my friend and former colleague, Mark Polymeropoulos, is a former senior intelligence officer in the CIA. Mark retired in 2019 after 26 years of service as one of the CIA's most decorated field officers, where he served in multiple field and headquarters assignments. He specialized in counterterrorism in the Middle East, South Asia, and spent extensive time uh, in war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. Just prior to his retirement, he served at CIA headquarters and oversaw our clandestine operations in Europe and Eurasia. Mark is a frequent commentator for the Washington Post, the New York Times, Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC. He writes a weekly column on intelligence as a Washington Examiner contributor, and he's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. But just to bring him down to earth a bit, Mark is also a dive bar aficionado and an unrepentant fan of the Boston Red Sox, so proof that we can't all be perfect. Um, unlike his taste in baseball clubs, though, his book, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, is exceptional. It draws on Mark's nearly three decades of operational experience to outline both the mindsets and the strategies necessary for leaders to lead in times of deep crisis and ambiguity. Um, as a recovering management consultant, uh, I've been subjected to more than my fair share of leadership books, and I'm usually quite suspicious of them. Many are academic, impractical, or otherwise not helpful. 
Um, this is not one of those books. Um, this is a practical field guide to leadership in tough circumstances, be it a boardroom, a family room, or a CIA safe house. The intelligence business is one where the gray areas often dominate, and Mark's book is filled with the insight of someone who spent his entire career operating and leading in situations where the right answer uh, and often the right path is rarely clear. So on behalf of uh, all of us here, Mark, thank you. Welcome to Dallas, and I'm thrilled to be talking with you tonight about your career and your book. Welcome you to the stage. Thanks. Appreciate it. Everybody pronounced my name correctly, which is extraordinary. <laughs> but I'll tell a story about that in a sec. I did practice it on the way right. uh, because we've talked, we've spoken many times, and and have been in touch. But uh, I thought to myself, I'll give it a go over once Everybody before did we very get up well. on stage. Um, so, Mark, you know, maybe kind of set up the book for us a little bit before we get into you know your career and your sure. experience at the agency. Um, what is Clarity in Crisis all about? So, and I retired in, in July of 2019, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. CIA was the only job I ever had, which is pretty terrifying. I came out of Cornell University. I was uh, recruited in um, uh, to the agency, and then, uh, you know, retiring 26 years later, you kind of wonder, you know, what are you going to do? Um, uh, it was interesting because I don't think I was a good leader when I started at CIA, um, certainly uh, as a young operations officer, but then even in management. But after, after some time, and particularly in the war zones, it dawned on me as I was getting close to the end of my uh, career that, that I was able to lead in times of crisis, that you know, that was my happy place. And it, it, you know, it, it, people talk about this a lot, but when there was a lack of situational awareness, um, when, you know, when the going was really tough, um, I was okay with that. And so then I started kind of dissecting some core principles. And I, I, look, I figured I, I should write about it. Because um, it was really interesting to me. I, I didn't go to business school. You know, I, did, I certainly didn't work at McKinsey. I don't know if they would have had me. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, it was, uh, it was something that I think I, I, I could, I could uh, uh, kind of impart to kind of the American people or, you know, internationally to, to readers. Um, but there was another thing, too, that I also wanted to, and it, it's certainly in the book, I wanted to talk about the CIA as a whole yeah. because I really believe it's an indispensable institution. Um, and sometimes it gets to get bad rap, but I thought if I went out and I kind of talked about my leadership principles, I would also be able to talk about what the role of intelligence was in American you know, national security. Yeah. Well, I think you know, so much of the richness of the book really does center on your experiences at the CIA. I mean, it's really the, the, the core of it. Um, maybe we could rewind just a little bit. Sure. You tell us a little bit about how you ended up, I mean, the first job. Right. What's the origin story? How did so, you end up there? So I, I love the, the, one of the most fun things talking to groups like this is you know people always say what you know what's the journey, um, what was your journey to the agency? And I, I had a really unique background. You know I was a I was a, a you know middle class kid growing up um, in New Jersey. Uh, uh, my dad was a professor at Rutgers University, but really it started before that because you know my dad who was uh, came to the United States from Greece on a Fulbright scholarship met my mom both of them at Cornell University. My mom was a you know a nice girl from Long Island, and so they had this kind of wild you know, romance where all the families on both sides of, of, of the pond were not happy. Um, uh, but, but ultimately that, you know, I was born in Greece. My dad finished his, he had to go through his Greek military service. After he got his PhD um, at, at Cornell, he went back to Greece, 32 years old, and the conscript in the Greek army. It's probably, probably not the greatest thing you'd, you'd want to do. But, but because of that um, and my dad's career, you know, we were able to go back to Greece every summer for several months. So it was, you know, I was able to travel a lot. But really, there was, there was a kind of a seminal moment. I talk about it in the book when my dad took a sabbatical in the, in the North African country of Algeria in 1980. 
So there I am. I'm 10 years old. My mom and this, and I have two kids in college now. I never would have done this. And maybe, you know, I've obviously, uh, I think a lot of folks here probably have um, kids as well. But, I, but my mom put me on an airplane alone. And I flew through Paris to Algeria to meet my dad at 10. Who does that? I mean, it's good. Actually, I think I wish I, I would have the courage to do that. But my dad and I spent uh, an entire month in an old beat-up Volkswagen minibus driving 2,000 miles to the Sahara Desert. And I thought I was Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and, and that's, you know, I started getting the itch of doing something a little different. And I, re I really look back to those times, um, and I'm you know, because you always wonder, like, why, why the CIA? Right. But I think there's, you know, there's little moments along the way, and that was certainly one of them. So how did you end up getting recruited then? Sure. So, so I went off to, to Cornell as well. Um, you know, it's kind of the legacy thing. So both my parents went there. And, um, you know, one day I was, you know, I, I, was, I was interested in national security. I thought, first of all, I, I wanted to be a, you know, a Navy fighter pilot. But unfortunately, my eyes started going bad. Um, but then I thought about the FBI or DEA or CIA, and then and the CIA was coming to Cornell to recruit on campus. And I remember going to the, the Career Center at Cornell, um, and so I, this was 1991. Um, and there was a guy there outside with an earpiece who was a security officer because there were protests on campus against the CIA. But I still made it through him. You know, I think he let me in. Um, and then kind of the rest is, is history. But interestingly enough, I got recruited in not on the operations side, but I, I rec That's got right. recruited in as, a, as an analyst. So I spent the first two and a half years as an analyst uh, at CIA. How did you, because you were also in at a time where that transition was pretty rare. Um, sure. To go from the op side, or from the analyst side to the op side. I mean, how did that, how did that happen? You just got in and realized right. analyst, being an analyst wasn't So, so well, happened. there's there's a funny story in that too. So, so I started off, actually there's something that was, it was really interesting. My first account was on Afghanistan in 1993. Pretty amazing. 1994 was the rise of the Taliban. And so later on when I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, that actually, proved to be really useful. Um, uh, but really what, what did it for me is, uh, is the agency sent me for three months to Jerusalem in 1995, 96 to cover the Palestinian elections. Um, and that was a three month you know, temporary duty assignment. And right then is when I said I, I wanted to become a case officer. I wanted to mm -hmm. live overseas um, and, and kind of do the operational work, which is, it's, you know, look, the, the one great thing about CIA, and I, again, I talk a lot about it in, in the book, is that there are a lot of different exciting things to do. You know, the analytic cadre, it's a tremendously important job um, where you're writing essentially for the president. Um, the operational cadre is different. You know, you're, you're recruiting spies. And one thing that I always love to tell audiences is, remember, so, so you know, uh, uh, a CIA agent is not what we were. We were CIA officers. An agent is a spy, a foreigner who we recruit to provide non-public information for the United States. So an agent is never an American. Just isn't. It's a good thing for everyone to know. Um, but the whole point of spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting, and handling an agent is something that I found really uh, kind of to be exciting and interesting, and I wanted to get into that. But you know, whether it's the, the technical side of the house, you know, the, our director of science and technology, they make all the spy gadgets, um, or even in the most unsung personnel, the logistics personnel. Um, our support officers, you know, who move stuff or who build things. You know, there's, a, there's kind of a ballet that goes into to the CIA, which is really important. So it just was, I, you know, I, I found a different path, um, and off I went to, to the operations side, certainly. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast, and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. 
changed my life in a really kind of different, you know, different trajectory. I would have spent a lot of time in the United States as an analyst. It would have been a great career. But I, there's one funny story. So I, so I went to my, my boss at the time. Um, he was my, not my branch chief, my group chief. And it was a guy by the name, everyone will know the name here, of John Brennan. Later on became the director of CIA. And I went to John Brennan and I said, I said, look, I think I, I, you know, he knew me as a junior analyst. And I said, I think I want to become a case officer. He said, sure, whatever. And I was like, <laughs> wait a second, like, aren't you supposed to protest a little bit? You know, was I the world's worst analyst? So, I, you know, maybe I was, but he let me go. But, you know, credit to him that he didn't try to convince me to, to stay or to leave the organization. He said, go kind of, you know, pursue your dreams. So my only, as an aside, my only John <laughs> Brennan story is, when he became the director, I was actually just about on my, on my way out. I was actually just a few months away from leaving. Right. And the only John Brennan story I have in the agency was I got, I was, I had flipped over to the open computer and I was uh, switching a Spotify song and someone tapped me on the shoulder at my desk and it looked like I was not doing any work. It was him. And I turned around and it was John <laughs> Brennan right. walking around the vault saying hi to everyone and I said, I am actually doing work. And he, kind of, and he said something kind of like, whatever. Whatever, <laughs> He yeah. kept walking. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit because you started to get into what the role of a case officer sure. really is. But I think there's so much out there uh, in the Hollywood depiction right. of what being a CIA, I mean, agent or officer, whatever right. verbiage they use is like. Maybe tell us a little bit more about what is the job actually like to be a case officer? So, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, there's, you see a lot of, of course, everyone kind of looks to Hollywood and the media um, of what kind of the, the mystique of, of, uh, of what kind of running spies are all about. But, but there, there's a couple things. First and foremost is it's, 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 kind, it's going to sound terrible. It's kind of boring sometimes. Like you, you sit around, you wait around a lot, and you also type a lot. So everyone was like, you know, what was your, you know, did, they were like, did you carry, you know, weapons and did you ever shoot anybody? I'm like, no, but I really can type. So, but why is that? So you think about it, because our job is, is, to, is, is to interact with another human being. Um, and, and, you know, I, all, all kidding aside, you know, I always consider the job of an operations officer like it was a psych 501 class, not a 101 class. Because ultimately, my job was to spot assess, develop, recruit, and handle someone who has made a decision to spy for the United States. That means they betrayed their country. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, so what, what's the psychological makeup of that person? And, and to me, that was kind of the most you know, fascinating part of the job. When I say it's boring, it's not boring. It's that you know, maybe I'll have an agent meeting. I'll meet an agent that we handle in a dyed area maybe once a month. That's it. You prepare the whole time for that. And you have some others as well. Um, but, but think of it, the, way, the way I love to, to, to think about this is, is flip it. So I have a job, and I, will, and I will be overseas somewhere, and I will have a couple people I have to meet to obtain information. What about that agent, that individual? whether it's in China, Russia, Syria, Iran, has made a decision to betray their country. And the sanction of that is pretty awful. If they get caught, it's, it's probably going to be death um, or certainly jail, getting jailed. And, 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 I always, I, and I tell a story in the book, and this was a really tremendous moment for me. I was in Europe one time, and I was training an agent of ours. He was, he was a member of a, a Middle Eastern government. And he was, we were going back into an area, a denied area. And so it, there was tremendous risk. I was training him on communication techniques, surveillance detection techniques. And he said to me, he said, Mark, how, you know, I want to tell you something. I said, OK. He said, look, he goes, he goes I know you're going to think about me um, you know, a couple times a month, because we have to meet. Uh, uh, and I know you have other stuff to do. And I'm like, no, I don't. You're the most important person. He said, whatever. Um, but he said, but he said you know, you're going to think about me a couple months, uh, times a month. But he goes, I'm going to think about you every day. Because if you make one mistake, not only myself, but my whole family, my tribe is going to be killed. So never forget that. I will think about you every single day. And I was stunned by this. 
And it was really an amazing moment because I was a junior operations officer. This is someone, my job is to, you know, is, is obviously to collect intelligence from this, this individual. Um, uh, and, and hopefully we can do good things with that. You know, hopefully the U.S. will conduct, you know, foreign policy taking into account what this agent has to say. Um, uh, but look what he is saying to me. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And so, and I was really blown away by that. And that really motivated me for the rest of my career um, because the, the, the amount of responsibility that a CIA case officer has, uh, you know, very often is keeping someone alive. And, um, and, and again, I, you know, I talk about it in the book, and it's just what I have to deal with as well. I've also had agents who've been killed. Um, I've made mistakes. And, and, you know, people who counted on me, the agents have, you know, uh, it kind of, uh, uh, you know, it didn't turn out that well for them. And that's something I'll never forget as well. So it's a pretty extraordinary job. Um, and, you know, it's not like the movies. You know, it's a lot of sitting around. I've been a lot of sitting around in safe houses. You know, people don't show up. Um, uh, but uh, but there's, there's, a, there's a part of this that is pretty serious. Yeah. Well, and, um, I mean, sort of building on that serious bridge, I mean, you did some real war zone tours in Iraq and Afghanistan during right. your career. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what those sure. experiences were like and how that related to the case officer work you've been doing for Sure. So, it, you know, it's interesting because, and this, this is actually a great discussion because it can go into, like, you know, where are we now in the national security yeah. establishment? Because for 20 years, um, you know, we're totally focused on counterterrorism. You can make an argument. We took our eye off the ball of countries like China, Russia, um, things that we have to do now. But, but the bottom line is we did, um, you know, uh, two decades of counterterrorism work. And what did that mean for someone, like both of us, actually, is, you know, uh, uh, it means a lot of deployments, a lot of work inside war zones, conflict zones. So I spent a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so whether it was, you know, with the invasion of Iraq, and uh, we were talking before about, you know, the Navy SEALs, I went in with, uh, with Special Operations Forces with the Navy SEALs. Um, as, we, as the city of Baghdad was falling, my job was to, was, was part of the hunt for, if you remember the, the deck of 55, uh, these were the Saddam Hussein's, um, you know, top, uh, uh, you know, top government officials. And so I was involved in that. Um, uh, and then in Afghanistan, I, maybe in, it was March of 02. So it was several months after, obviously, the terrible events of September 11th. I went into to Kandahar. And then later on, a year in Afghanistan um, as a base chief, running a paramilitary base in eastern Afghanistan, 2011 and 2012. It just became part of the core of what we, what we did. And um, it's a little bit different. You know, I think that you know, the U.S. became very, very good, and, you know, I hope this doesn't offend anyone, but we got, we got really good at manhunting. So, so anywhere, you know, we can find someone um, and, and, you know, help our U.S. military brethren kill them anywhere around the world. Uh, and we got great at that, and that's what the CIA did and does very well. I actually had this exact conversation with Director, CIA Director Burns a couple weeks ago because um, we were kind of talking about the state of the agency, and I went to see him. Um, uh, that doesn't mean we are really good at finding out what Vladimir Putin's going to do, you know, next week in the Ukraine. I'm, I'm being serious now because I think that's, that's something that, you know, it's, it's, it's actually counterterrorism work very often is much easier. We had a singular focus, which was to kill al-Qaeda. That's what my job was for, for decades, um, or, or the Taliban. But, uh, but when it comes to tougher problems like, um, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, Russia, Ukraine, China, Syria, here old neck of the woods, um, and I spent a little bit of time there. Uh, here and there, which I can talk about or not, um, but but ultimately, kind of the, the, you know, hard target intelligence issues, um, a little bit different. And I think that's when I and, and that's a whole other probably could be a whole other kind of uh, you know seminar is is what I think a lot of us believe CIA has to now shift from those counterterrorism wars um, uh, into uh, into more hard target hard target operations because we have to be able to penetrate the governments of, of Russia and China, Iran, North Korea. 
Um, that's the kind of the, uh, and, and really particularly in China as, as we kind of pivot to, to Asia, that's going to be the biggest challenges in the, you know, in the, in the next 10, 15 years. Well, going to Mr. Putin's neck of the woods for sure. a second, you rounded out your career working on Europe and Eurasia, right. so a little bit of a different part of the world than you'd spent most of your career on. Um, and it, coincidentally, it was happening during the time when the Russians were interfering in our elections. Right. I mean, could you bring us into that a little bit and sure. talk about that experience? So that was, that was hard for a couple of reasons. One is um, we didn't have the resources uh, yet to, to tackle this. I was moved over from the, from the kind of the Near East, the Middle East shop, the counterterrorism shop, as a member of the Senior Intelligence Service, um, which is like the general officer in the military. And a whole bunch of us were moved over to kind of after 2016 because the idea was to kind of take it to the Russians after what they did to us. And that's the right thing to do. Um, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. Um, but you just, it, you know, it, it, the agency's an aircraft carrier. And, you know, and you just can't go recruit Russians. It takes a long time. And so, um, you know, this was, this was a, you know, we, we treated uh, uh, Russian election interference, interference in 2016 like we treated September 12th in 2001. It was an attack on the United States, and we had to go, you know, we had to really kind of give it to the Russians and, and, and go back at them. Um, I think it made it a little bit hard sometimes. I'm, I'm going to be totally apolitical, but, our, you know, former President Trump every once in a while would not say really nice things about the agency, and so we had to kind of, kind of you know, get rid of that noise. Um, uh, and it didn't really matter because intelligence officers in general, you know, are, are pretty apolitical. I, I don't know the political leanings of anyone I work with. I mean, some of us afterwards now and, you know, in the public, you can kind of tell here and there, or the, although it's, the introduction is I talk to everybody, so I can't be pigeonholed anywhere. Um, uh, but, but ultimately, um, uh, that, was a, that was a really tough time because I, I will tell you that the feeling at the agency on September 12th is, um, is, is we lost. You know, that was, that was a terrible day. Um, uh, and as much as we were warning, you know, then President Bush, who just came into office, um, uh, you know, that the attack was coming. Um, and, and I think he performed marvelously after that in kind of rallying uh, the United States uh, in, in terms of our, our initial efforts in Afghanistan. Um, same kind of feeling with Russian election interference. Um, you know, the intelligence community, you know, we, we did not do enough. Um, and so that's kind of, a, I mean, that, you know, one of the things that I really love talking to groups about is that, you know, the intelligence community and, and our old crowd at, at CIA, you know, these really are the unsung heroes. Um, you know, there's, you never get a pat in the, pat in the back. Um, you know, if you, you know, your successes are never heralded and when you fail, you know, it's on the front page of every paper on the planet. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of, the, you know, what you kind of sign up for. That, that's okay. Um, uh, but really, the, the, you know, the men and women of the, of the intelligence community and in, in particular old crowd at CIA are really... Um, tremendous individuals who really toil in the shadows. And that's why, you know, on September 12th or after the events of, of you know, Russia interfering in our, our, our elections. And this is, nothing, this is not a statement on what they, you know, did it have an effect on the elections, but it was one of the greatest covert action programs in the history of espionage and what they did to our country. Um, so it was, it was certainly time for us to push back, and I was, I was proud to help that. Yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit back to the book, so, and you alluded to this at the beginning, but I wonder if you might dive into it a little bit more. So you, you retired, uh, and instead of just spending all your time at the Outer Banks, you actually decided to write a book, <laughs> right. um, leveraging the lessons of, you know, your, your agency career. Um, why? What was, the, what was the reason for really spending that time so, you know, doing it? I, I, you know, as I said before, it was, it was really interesting to me. I, I, I thought I was really good at my job right when I retired. And I don't know if any, that resonates with kind of the group here, but... Um, I look back sometimes at the leadership decisions I made as a junior officer or, or, or my, you know, first or second uh, uh, time manager, 
Um, but I got really good in the end, and I started thinking about why. And, and again, it was, it was just this, this you know, interesting phenomena where when times were tough, when there was a lack of situational awareness, um, you know, we talk about living in the gray. I was really good at making decisions, and I was comfortable. And, and, I'll, uh, and I'll tell a story on this. We were running a counterterrorism operation. I had actually, this was, I, I had left my base in eastern, eastern Afghanistan, so I was back in headquarters around 2012. Um, uh, uh, and uh, for, for the year before, I was running, you know, uh, running a base where we were in kind of armed combat with al-Qaeda every day. We were running agents um, to, to obviously collect intelligence in al-Qaeda, and we were calling in airstrikes, you know, with the U.S. military partners, um, you know, to take them off the battlefield. And it was an incredible year. But I came back, and I, I thought, you know, I, that's when I started thinking about this. I had learned a lot of lessons. And I remember my, my base, the, the same individuals there, um, were, were running a counterterrorism operation. And, and headquarters personnel, senior personnel, called me down to what was an operational floor, and they said, what do you think? They want to go forward in trying to capture, um, it was a really senior Taliban, high-value target. Uh, uh, and I knew the whole operation kind of, you know, because I, I was there before. Um, I knew the personnel who were there. I knew they were, you know, I, I knew their, you know, the, uh, what they had done. The agents that we had recruited, our partners, you know, with the Afghans, but, but headquarters saw it differently. You know, communications was bad. Weather was bad. Everything to them was, was that kind of messy, gray, situational awareness. We can't do this. And my response was, well, we have to do this. It's easy. And a senior officer, you know who it is, former head of counterterrorism, said to me one time, at, at that time, he said, what do you think? I said, we should do it. Um, and uh, and he, said, he said to me, he goes, if, if this is wrong, it's your career. Like, I have nothing to do with this. I kind of was called down as, for advice, but he, was, he said, he said, it's on you if, if we get this wrong. And we didn't get it wrong. And they executed the operation, and we took a really bad guy off the battlefield. And afterwards, that's when I started thinking, like, wow, I can do this. Now, I was, you know, that's towards the end of my career, but I wanted to write about it because I also think it's applicable to kind of all walks of life. And, you know, whether you're, you know, you're a police officer or you're an ER nurse um, or you're making a pitch at a sales meeting, you know, the, you know, there's always times where, or, or, or we're in the pandemic, and everything's all screwed up in this country in terms of lack of situational awareness, uh, maybe in the business climate. But I really think, you know, a lot of these principles in the book are, are applicable, and I've had fun kind of writing about it and, and talking about it, speaking about it all over the country. And so, um, you know, it's been, a, it's been a pretty neat journey. I, I really liked how the book was organized around those principles and how, you know, toward the end, there's very clear ways to apply them. Um, knowing we can't go through the whole thing tonight, but sure. what might be a, a couple of the principles you sure, sure. bring out to, to give it some color? So I think um, my favorite principle, which I kind of teach to my kids all the time, is I call it, you know, it's called adversity is the performance-enhancing drug to success. I'm not, I'm not kind of advocating for PEDs. We just <laughs> went through the Hall of Fame voting for baseball. Um, but no, adversity is the PEDs to success because ultimately, you know, and, and think about this in all your lives and the lives of your children and your, your friends and family, you know, I, I really do believe, you know, for, for, for an elite performing unit to have great success, they, they, have to ha they have to taste rock bottom before that. I mean, it's just, and, and I can go through a million sports analogies or baseball analogies, as you, as you said, I'm a you know, crazy Red Sox fan. Any Red Sox fan here? There you go. So remember, so 2003, the Red Sox lose the seven-game series. Aaron Boone hits a walk-off home run. They lose four games to three to the Yankees. The next year, in 2004, they're down three games to none, and Kevin Millar gets up there and he says, we're going to shock the world. And they, they, they win four straight games and they win the series. There's no way they'd do that if they hadn't lost the year before. Or my favorite analogy is Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team as a sophomore. Come on. And so, so you think about that, you know, and, and I mean, and, and, you know, 
I mean, I, I tell this to my kids at all. I'm, I, I'm sorry, I, I tell this to my kids all the time. You know, life is hard. Or as I, as I tell them, like, kind of life sucks sometimes. Like, bad things happen. So you have to be able to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And so you've got to learn from that adversity. And, and I think that you never have success in life, um, or it's rare, uh, particularly elite performing teams, if they haven't gone through some tough times. And it's just it's a basic principle, but it's good to know because when things are really crappy, just think about that for the future, that you know, there's going to be a brighter day and, and you've got to learn from this stuff. And so that's one of the principles that, I, that I've really enjoyed. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about one of the big challenges for the agency going forward, which right. is the shift from you know, two decades of counterterrorism sure. to focus on kind of hard target countries, near peer competitors. Um, do you see that as the biggest challenge for the agency going forward? Or, I mean, if not, maybe a little bit on, as we kind of look out over the next five sure. to 10 years, what are the big you know, seismic shifts that have to happen inside the CIA to sure. make it work? So I, so I think, you know, first and foremost, yes, there has to be that shift. And so, you know, a lot of us who spent kind of decades in the war zones, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, I mean, it goes on. It's, you know, every place that I've spent a lot of time, yeah. we have to go back to that core business of, of recruiting hard targets, um, which means being able to penetrate the governments of really Russia, China, and a little bit more in you know, Iran and, and, and North Korea. But but what does that mean? You have to have language expertise. It's a lot of investment in people to learn languages. Um, uh, and, and it's harder. And so there has to be that shift. And, and that means people, money, resources, and, and, and that's happening. But I think there's something else that's happening in the intelligence community is that, and I talk about it and I write about it a lot, is also there's been an explosion of data uh, uh, you know, uh, around the world. And there is, and you probably saw this as an analyst for sure, there is a tendency that, that because we live in this classified world, we're kind of arrogant about secret data. But the fact of the matter is there is, there is so much out there that, um, that can be acquired commercially. And so, so my favorite uh, uh, kind of example of this is, and I, I was uh, the, the chief of operations in the Europe-Eurasia Mission Center. So I was chief of clandestine operations in Europe and Eurasia. That's 50, 45 countries, including you know, Ukraine, Russia, uh, Turkey, all kinds of great you know, hotspots. Um, and in 2018, I believe it was 18 or 17, the, the Russians tried to kill Sergei Skripal, who was a former uh, Russian intelligence officer who defected and was living in Salisbury in the UK. But you know who, you know who figured out this? It was, it was a company called Bellingcat. Um, and it was pretty extraordinary. And, and, and here's the dirty secret. We had no idea. And they published their findings. And we were blown away. But how did they do this? Well, ultimately, it's a company that they were able to go buy commercial data and track Russian intelligence officers as they tried to kill you know, uh, you know, one of their former officers in, in the UK. So, so my view is that there is so much out there that, that the US government really has to kind of open their eyes to. Because um, you know, if you, you know, look at places like London um, or Dubai or, or, chi or, or, or in China or some, some American cities as well, there's, these are smart cities. Um, there's data out there that, that CIA officers are not going to go recruit someone to steal. You can go buy it. And so I, I would like to see the U.S. government kind of embrace that kind of concept of, 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 of big data. It's not open source. It's commercially sourced um, yeah. because I think we can solve a lot of intelligence problems that way. So I, but that's, that's, a, that's a cultural mind shift for case officers. I'm not going to do it. For analysts, too, hey, guess what? It's not secret. Yeah. And, and the worst thing about CIA and the intelligence community is, is, is always kind of subject to this. If it's not secret, it's not cool. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't do it. You know? And so, but you know what? I, I think there's, there's a lot out there. That, so we have to kind of open our minds. Because ultimately, intelligence can, can maybe it's not, maybe intelligence can complement that open source world. And that's OK. 
because I still, I, still have to know, I still have to be able to recruit and know what Vladimir Putin's going to do tomorrow morning in Ukraine. That's going to be a human source. Um, but big data maybe will tell us uh, you know, where all those Russian intelligence officers and Russian military officers are right now. I wanted to ask you, we talked a little bit about the role of a CIA case officer, and I think one of the things I've been struck by just in conversations about my book has been um, the extent to which even, you know, very well-educated groups of people don't really have a grasp of like, what, what right. the agency is. Could you fire off maybe a few, and you talked about it with the CIA agent versus officer. What sure. do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about the agency that are floating around Oh, sure. There? Well, I mean, look, I mean, everyone's favorite, you know, spy is James Bond. So that doesn't happen. Um, you know, I think I, uh, you know, so uh, the best vehicle in an operation is an old beat up car that's going to blend in uh, in the environment in Damascus or Cairo or Sinai, Yemen. You know, it's not going to be an Aston Martin. Um, uh, it, it, you know, definitely not. I don't think I, you know, uh, CIA officers are government employees, so we don't really wear Hugo Boss suits. Maybe you did. I nope, don't. never. And so, you know. Um, and, and certainly there's, uh, uh, how can I got to be careful when I say this? There's, you know, I, I, we don't have beautiful supermodels uh, at our side all the time, although my wife would disagree that. Um, but, but, I mean, you know, it's a, it's, it's, the, the media, you know, in Hollywood kind of gets it wrong um, most of the time, but, but not always. I mean, there's, you know, there's, you know, I think there's, uh, your book was fantastic. I will say that. I, I was, I was going to joke around like both of our books are for sale here. His book is better than mine. Um, <laughs> That's because I got to make things up. I though, so. no, but, but uh, uh, no, I mean, it's a, you know, I, I think that, I think what, what's not written is just the, the, the kind of, you have to have this intestinal fortitude. Um, uh, you know, meeting an agent means you're waiting at a safe house. Um, sometimes they don't show up. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of, of patience that's in order. Um, and it's, and, and there's, and, and the last part too, is that, you know, I'm not, I, I think, you know, the only time I carried a weapon was in war zones. It certainly wasn't, um, when I was in the streets of, of regular countries, but I know we're, we're running short on time. I have to tell one great Texas story. Can I tell it? Please. Okay. Yeah. It's with George I, I assume there's some fans here of W, right? Maybe George W. Bush. Okay. So, so in 2006, I was in a Middle Eastern country that you know well. Um, we'll just kind of hint at that. And I get a phone call. It's from, from, George, uh, from W's PDB briefers. The Presidential Daily Brief is the preeminent um, uh, publication in the United States government, obviously for intelligence. It's given to the president and, and the national security team, every, and you wrote for that as well. And so the briefers called me, and they said, hey, we're running down to the Oval. We want to get your take on a breaking situation. I was the deputy station chief in a country, and I was pretty excited. That's, that's, you know, that's a pretty cool thing. So I give, him my t I give them my two cents and, like, got it. Wait by the phone. You know, a couple hours we'll come back and we'll give you the you know W's uh, uh, response to this. So I'm pretty psyched about this. Um, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I get a, finally get a call and, and we call it the green line, the secure phone. I said, "How to go down in the Oval?" And they're like, "Well, it went great." And I was like, "Great!" Like so. So did you tell the president what I had to say? He goes, "No." He goes, "We spent the whole time trying to pronounce your last name." <laughs> That's my George W. Bush story. <laughs> And I, I was speechless after that, so there you go. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I, um, <clears throat> my, my one story was, so one of the, this is, I was at a slightly lower level than you at around that point, even though we're pretty close to the same age. Um, that was a joke, by the way. We're not even close. Um, I'm way older than you. You're way older. Yeah. Uh, and I was actually the person who was um, highlighting, one, this was one of my first jobs at the agency, I was the person who was highlighting the PDB before it would get sent out. So there was a point in time where it was literally these books would get printed, and the briefer who would brief then uh, W would, would highlight the things that he or she wanted to cover in that day's PDB. And 
so, so he or she would, would highlight it, and they would hand it to me, and there was a few other kind of gophers who were doing this, and you had to replicate the same highlighting thing for the whole national security team. Because everyone wanted to see what the president Because everyone wanted to see what the president yeah. had. And, uh, and there, were, there was one day where Brie was kind of watching me do it, and I, I went like one word too long, <laughs> and he's like, W, he's not going to like that. Oh. It goes too long. you got to redo it. So I redid it. Um, he, was, he was, by the way, a tremendous consumer of intelligence. Yes, he was. He was, yeah. Yeah, he was. He was. I think uh, analysts probably spent more time in the Oval with him with than yeah. with, with any other president in right. the last 25 years or so. Um, Mark, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. I think we'll open it up to sure. questions. Yep. Hi, I wanted to add a couple of things I wanted to mention. Um, how involved was the CIA and W's going into Iraq with all that erroneous information? And secondly, I just came from Sundance, and they did a documentary on Navalny. Yes. Have you seen that? No, I've heard about it, and I can't it's wait to see it. It's quite interesting because Navalny talks to one disguises himself as somebody else and talks to one of the guys that poisoned him. Right. And the guy on the phone tells him exactly right. how he poisoned him and what Putin wanted him to do. So anyway, if you get a chance, it is a good yes. bit. But I'm just curious yeah. because what we know in the press is that the, um, the information about going into Iraq was kind of limp. So I just I, wonder I, what I, you have to say. I think that what, what you, you know in the press is what happened. It was bad, um, not the agency's finest moment at all. I'll never forget, I was, I was living in, with, the, with the Kurds in northern Iraq in December of 2002, and then January, and I can't remember when Colin Powell's UN speech, this famous, you know, Colin Powell obviously went to the United Nations and gave the speech to try, try to justify the war, and he talked about WMD. And I was with, it was an agency, kind of a joint agency and then US Army Special Forces team were living with the Kurds, getting ready to go in, um, and we were listening to that speech, and we were like, where's this coming from? Didn't, I, I mean, you know, there, there was plenty of reasons to, to hate Saddam Hussein, um, uh, but, but I think that ultimately that was, you know, it's a combination of, of a collection and an analytical kind of disaster. And this is, you might think differently, it's certainly what I think, um, where, you know, obviously we didn't have the right sources. Um, you know, the famous curveball was not even our source. That was a, I believe it was a German source. But ultimately, um, uh, the analysts made a horrific call on this. No, I will say that the agency, you know, owned up to it. Where, there's, where there were tremendous reforms that were enacted after that, where there was ombudsman, where there was, there, I mean, there, I think that was pretty humiliating uh, uh, for the CIA. And it's something that, you know, when I talk in public like this, like, you got to own it. That was a bad moment. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so just, you know, that, that, that's simple as that. You know, we made the call that Iraq had WND. And trust me, I, I, ser I searched half of Iraq for it. Did you really make that call? The agency did. Did they? Yeah. The analyst did 100%. I mean, George, George Tenet, who I love, is a former Greek. Um, uh, well, not a, I mean, he's a fellow Greek. Sorry, not former. A fellow Greek. Jeez, yeah. Um, you know, that's, I, you know he, he made the famous statement it was a slam dunk, and I think he'll always regret that. So not a, not a good moment. We get stuff wrong sometimes. That was a big one. Now, and one thing on that, so I, that doesn't kind of negate that I'm, I'm really proud of the service that a lot of us um, dead in Iraq. No, but it's just, I mean, you know, but I've had to kind of, kind of come to terms with that too. So. Yeah. 
for being here. Um, I, um, I know there's probably 20 agencies in the US and in Europe there are other same number across all the other countries like China, Russia, Iran. Um, and uh, do you share information across all of those agencies? Oh, what a, what a great, great, great question. So I, I should have been clearer on this. So, you know, the, the fundamental job in the operational director is, well, there's three things we do. First is we run what's called unilateral operations, where we recruit spies. Um, uh, and that's, I, I kind of alluded to that a little bit. The second is our partnerships. And this is what you're talking about, to our bilateral intelligence relationships. And it's, they're extraordinary. And, and one could argue they're just as important as the unilateral spies that we recruit. So for example, when we talk about the Five Eyes partnerships, which is um, you know, the United Kingdom, uh, you know, Canada, Australia, what am I missing? Kiwis. Uh, uh, New Zealand, yeah. um, and, and the US. And so, so it, you know, this is extraordinary information sharing that has caught spies, taken down you know, uh, you know, uh, counter you know, uh, proliferation networks, caught terrorists. And so, so our bilateral partnerships are critical. And, and, I, and I, I have a good story with this. So, so you, you know, and so I served a lot of time in the Middle East. Well, if you remember that when you know, you know, Saddam's first, the first Gulf War, um, you know, the you know the, the Jordanian government sided with Saddam Hussein to some extent. They, you know, King Hussein at the time was kind of neutral, and he really was kind of you know blackballed by the U.S. government. But under the table, the CIA and the Jordanian General Intelligence Directorate had this incredible bilateral relationship that kept things alive. And then later on when Jordan was rehabilitated in the world, he, King Hussein, then kind of credited the CIA's relationship with the Jordanian GID um, as kind of a foundational that allowed them to, to, to kind of, and, and they've turned into probably the best counterterrorism partner we have anywhere on the, on the planet. That's the Jordanians. Um, but but, I, but I, 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 you know, I would argue that, that you know, the bilateral intelligence ties are absolutely critical. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's something that we do, you know, just as much as we're running unilateral operations, we have what we are called these, these liaison operations. Um, and so, and then, and the, the, so that the third part of the triad of an operations officer, you have unilateral operations, liaison operations, and then there's covert action. So I should have mentioned that earlier. And that's where, um, uh, sometimes the agency gets into trouble. Sometimes we don't, but. <laughs> Hi, thanks Hi for tonight. Sure. Um, I had a few uh, questions in my mind. I thought I'd kind of throw them out to sure. you and maybe you can take one or some okay. or all of them. Um, one is, I wonder how you feel your um, Greek heritage informed uh, your unique lens yep. uh, in the activities that you ended up taking on. And then I just wanted to lob up ideas like um, cybersecurity sure. and cryptocurrencies yep. and see what you think are challenges in front. And then finally, um, this is around um, humans as assets for intelligence agencies on either side. How is social media impacting that prior to them becoming assets oh, wow. to the agencies? Right. Thanks. All right. So let's start off with the, the Greek part of it. I love talking about this. So, so one, you know, it, it, it's so interesting because I was I I spent my time in the in the Middle East in the Arab world, um, and and Greeks and Arabs have always been very close. That just is is you know the uh, the way it's always you know was kind of part of geopolitics for a long time. So I remember being in certain countries where I was a U.S. embassy official, um, but my last name is Polymeropoulos, and I'm talking to someone who should never talk to me, and they would say, you know, I know you're from the embassy, but you're Greek, so it's okay. <laughs> um, and I'd be like, that's great, you know. Um, and so, so but my, my Greek background in the Middle East was extraordinary because, and, and I mean, this is just kind of on a cultural level, so, what, you know, Greeks are super passionate. I mean, you see I'm kind of crazy and outgoing, but super passionate about family. 
And so, and, so, and, so, and so guess what? So are Arabs, too. The Arab world is 100% like that. So in my role in trying to recruit an Arab target, um, you know, would it be kind of me, the Wiley case officer? No. I'm going to have my wife there. I'm going to have my kids there. You know, I, I, we, would, we, would, we would do so, and it's, it's manipulative, sort of, because I actually, you know, uh, uh, it's one of the great joys of the job was to recruit a target um, because, because, by the way, they're spying for America. That's good. So I'm not guilty about that at all. Um, uh, you know, they're doing the right thing. But ultimately, it was, uh, it, it was based on kind of, my, my, kind of this Greek background and everything that I brought to it helped me out so much in the Arab world. Now, it was also sometimes a curse. Because at the end of the day, if I recruit someone, let's say it's an Egyptian official, a Syrian official, a Yemeni official, and they would say, you know, Mark, we've spent a year together. I'm giving you all of our secrets. Um, but I have to leave. And guess what? That person is not actually spying for me. He's spying for the CIA. So I always had a hard time in, in what we call the turnover of the agent. Um, because guess what? They have to meet someone else. And it's probably not going to be a Greek. I mean, I wish we had like this Greek mafia. <laughs> we should, I suppose. George Tenet would, if he was still director, we'd have that. But, but ultimately, I would always, I'd have trouble in that turnover because guess what? They're actually, they're actually spying for the United States of America. And so you know, I, I literally would have people, uh, an, a, 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 an agent who had given us incredible stuff would say, I did this for you. I'm not doing it for the CIA. And I'm like, and, and then you have to try to start the process of, of moving them there. So but I, thought, I think the, the Greek part, the, my Greek heritage was an incredible asset. Um, uh, your question on cyber, um, well, I mean, cyber, you know, I mean, you know, so, so this is a whole other, other topic, but cyber is what I believe is part of kind of the future of warfare, which is hybrid warfare. So it's the idea of not, well, we might see this with Russia, Ukraine, but not the idea of you know, land armies you know, fighting each other. And so, so what is hybrid warfare? It's, it's, it's cyber. Um, it's what the Russians have done taking down the Ukrainian power grid. It's what the Russians done here, colonial pipeline. I mean, there's so many things that cyber can do to be incredibly damaging to another country. Um, it's, almost, it, it, it's a fascinating topic for me because there's no rules that are set yet. So, so what is just collection? So if the Russians hack into uh, something in the United States just to collect information, is that part of traditional espionage? Well, some would argue yes. But guess what you can do in, in one turn of a switch? You can shut down the whole power grid in New York City. And so then that becomes covert action. That becomes a really aggressive action. So the whole cyber realm is so fascinating to me because all the rules of espionage are kind of thrown um, you know, uh, 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 upside down. And then I guess your last question on social media, I mean, you know, I, I think, I mean, if, if I get it right, you know, agents are motivated for certain reasons, you know, and, and you go through, so it can be obviously money, um, you know, it can be ego, you know, maybe they hit the glass ceiling somewhere, you know, uh, maybe they have a sick relative who wants to get, uh, you know, treatment at medical care in the United States. Maybe they want to send their kids to college. I don't know if social media plays any role, um, you know, uh, uh, in that because because th these are just fundamental things. So my job is to find. So if, if I, you know, we have to penetrate the Russian, um, you know, uh, hypersonic weapons program. So we obviously going to have targets that we know of. But what we want to do is find individuals we know have some vulnerability, and it would be something like that. You know, do they hate their government? Do they need something from the West? Need something in the United States? Now, the, the one thing about social media, I will say, is that. You know, one of the, and people hate Facebook. Everyone hates Facebook, right? Not really. I don't know. We love Facebook because all Facebook does is take targets, put all of their, excuse my language, shit on Facebook all the time. And they talk, they, they talk about their whole lives. And we're sitting there in the background saying, thank you. We know where you go shopping. We know where you go to work. 
we know your whole family. And so if, if we're going to make an approach, if we want to assess your vulnerabilities as that Russian scientist, you've just given us all that information. Um, so that's when social, I mean, with social media for me can, you know, for, for us was a, was a huge asset for, for a long time. At the same time, you don't want all of us on social media telling us our whole stories, which of course I think I certainly do on Twitter. So well, you've left now. I know. Less of a concern. That's right. <laughs> My question for you is, um, you have lived so much, you know so much, now you're retired. How do you feel with all the confidential information in your system? I forgot it all. That's the great thing. I did. No, I'm, I'm, we're very careful on that. So both David and I, you know, when we speak in public, um, certainly when writing the book, um, you know, we have a, I have a very kind of you know uh, uh, ongoing dialogue with the agency. It's called the Publication Review Board. So basically, everything I say in public has generally been cleared, um, and, uh, uh, and and you'd be surprised. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable what what they'll allow us to say. I think what I try to yeah. say is that wouldn't you feel Threatened? Oh sure. Or, or oh yeah, I've revenge? had. I mean, look, I uh, there was I I've I, I we were we were evacuated from three different postings because of threats on our life. Um, I had a you know I, I live in Northern Virginia. I had a Fairfax County police officer, a police car outside my house for six months, twenty four seven at some point. So there's that. Um, and then then you just kind of say you know at some point I'm getting too old. I don't know. Someone wants to come after us. They can find me at a, at a Red Sox game at Fenway Park, I guess. But no, but it's, it, it, this is—I I should take—I do take it seriously. But but ultimately, uh, uh, you know, I, we, so so the chief of police in Vienna, Virginia, where I live, has a TS a top secret clearance. That's because everybody from you know former agency folks are all living there. So. <laughs> bit of a personal question. Sure. This is a little bit of a personal question. Can you take that a step further? So you have a wife, you have children. Yeah. They go with you to places like right. Afghanistan. Did you ever feel they were at risk? How did they feel about it? So they, they do not come, you know, our families don't go to the conflict zones, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, or, or places like that. But, but they certainly were in other places where there was, you know, there was civil unrest. Um, you know, I was in one location where the embassy was attacked. My wife and I were, you know, in the embassy when al-Qaeda, uh, you know, uh, 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 attacked it. My kids were at a nearby, the nearby diplomatic school and saw, you know, the, the embassy burning and were, thought we were dead. Um, so they've, they've been through a hell of a lot, but I think that, you know, it was a pretty extraordinary life they've lived. So they've lived. So my, my kids really kind of spent a decade growing up in the Middle East. Um, uh, and they have, you know, this incredible kind of, kind of understanding for people in the world. And, um, and, and here's the other thing, too, is they also, so, so, you know, in the really bad places, no, they don't go. But they were in some tough spots for us. But that's why it's so interesting to me to see them as they're both in college now. Um, and they love the United States. And they know this is an imperfect country. But they also have seen, like, you know, war and poverty and a lot of really bad things. Um, so they have this incredible appreciation for living uh, in America. And that's not a political statement at all because you can, you know, you know we, have our, we have our issues here. But it's, it's, it's pretty amazing um, to, to how they've kind of turned out. Uh, and, and kind of the love they have for this country. And that to me is, is um, I, I didn't teach them that. They just came up with that on their own. I think we've got time for maybe two more. On an ongoing daily basis, what does a CIA analyst do? That's for you. There you go. <laughs> um, so think of a question that president might have. And I'll, I'll use Syria as an example, because that was what I spent most of my time on. So when, when the crisis started in 2011, 
the question from the president or from really anybody, right, was, well, what's going to happen? You know, is Assad going to go? How is he going to go? How long is it going to take? Um, you're answering a, an intelligence question um, or an exam question, however you want to put it. Um, and what you're doing, though, that's maybe a little bit different from what a, a journalist for the Post or the Times or someone at a think tank is doing is you've got access to, you have access to all of that, but you also have access to a lot of other sources of information. You have the stuff that, you know, Mark's sources would provide. Uh, you know, someone in the Syrian Ministry of Foreign Affairs or Syrian Intelligence Services. You've got maybe stolen documents. You've got um, maybe, depending on, on the country, the place, the time, you might actually have intercept, intercepted communications of phone calls. You might have satellite imagery um, that's helping you understand the placement of forces, and that might signal some kind of intent. So you've got access to this whole box of other kind of sources of information all the open stuff, and you're putting all that together as an all-source analyst and saying, well, how do I answer this question? And how do I do it in a very um, fact-based, non-value-laden way, um, as objectively as possible? And you're putting that down, you know, in sort of, as Mark alluded, the flagship product, the president's uh, daily brief. That's about a page, uh, three-quarters of a page, and you're answering a question like that, um, you know, and, and trying to make... You know, there's a question about the, the Iraq WMD. I mean, uh, one of the things that happened in the analytic cadre after that was we had to get a lot more um, clear about how we made judgments. And so, you know, there's very specific probabilistic language that's used. There's very clear ways that you describe the sourcing, um, what might be wrong with it. You know, so we put sometimes even on Syria, you'd put a low confidence judgment in front of the president. Which that's a surefire way to piss someone off is to put a low confidence judgment in front of them. Um, but it's the truth of the job is, you know, you're, you're dealing with this, you know, Mark's dealing with this incredible ambiguity in sort of the human space of, you know, what's this, is this guy going to work for us not? What's motivating him or her? Um, you know, as an analyst, you're dealing with really imperfect kind of fragmented information and trying to put this picture together on really difficult questions. So you're doing that. You're writing, you know, that up. You're briefing that to policymakers. You're briefing that to foreign partners. Um, you're spending time with the with the you know, ops officers trying to figure out, well, what are the, you know, what are the intelligence requirements that we might have that, that sort of try to fill gaps that policymakers have and, and work with collectors to fill those. That's kind of the day-to-day. The -day. Let me, one quick thing. Think about right now in, with Russia, Ukraine. So I think the, I think the intelligence analysts have nailed it. Because what has have, what have, what the CIA analytic cadre done? They've given the President of the United States um, uh, 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 a picture of what the Russians could do. So remember, intelligence is not predictive. We're, you know, the, the, our job is not to say, you know, three weeks from now, you know, Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Our job is to say that, you know, with the all-source picture is that they're poised to and he can at any minute, and they've done that. And so I think that's, that's a really important point that I think a lot of people don't understand sometimes is that we're not predicting time or place. Um, you know, you're helping a policymaker make decisions. And so I think that's, you know, it's a perfect example right now. So I think the intelligence community of the United States has done a fantastic job um, in kind of setting up what is going to be really difficult policy decisions uh, for the Biden administration on, on what to do. And, um, and, 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 you know, uh, I think there is a understanding, a little bit more understanding now, uh, particularly after the Afghan withdrawal and all the questions around that on what kind of, what intelligence can and can't do. But again, it's not predictive. I don't know yeah. if you agree with that. Yeah, no. Yeah. I think some of it is also bounding what's possible. So I'd yeah. imagine that the, you know, analysts working in Russia, Ukraine now right. have a set of scenarios that kind of say, you know, it could be A, B, C, and probably D. 
um, with some probability associated with each of them that helps you know policymakers sort of understand yep. the, the shape of things. I, I will say that the way that intelligence is often received can be quite sort of frustrating and amusing for different parties involved because. Uh, you know, the National Security Council, the president often want things that are far more definitive. Like, I'll give you a Syria example. When, when uh, protests started, um, and it, it had started to turn over the first maybe six months into more of an insurgency, uh, you know, there was a lot of frustration in the Obama White House that we weren't more clear and specific on when Assad was going to fall. And, uh, you know, we were, we held to a line around, well, there's a number of different scenarios, but here's the staying power and the assets that he can really, you know, draw on. And that kind of tension and that back and forth between the agency and the, and the White House and, and policymakers, I think, is, is good friction a lot of the times because analysts, you know, have to be very objective and sort of not policy prescriptive um, in their judgments. And, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's oftentimes not exactly what the White House wants to hear. But right. that's, it's good when you have that because it means that the agency is doing its job. Can we do one more? One more, yeah. All right. Uh, you talked a little bit about cybersecurity yeah. and hacking, like the Colonial Pipeline. We always read about the hacks on us. We never hear anything about our retaliation, what we're doing. <laughs> so are we just saying, please don't do that again, or are we doing anything? No, we are. Um, and that's probably the most classified thing in the entire U.S. government because that's Cyber Command and, and National Security Agency. And so, you know, they're, they're, we certainly have the tools to do it. Um, I think that that oftentimes policymakers may be a bit reluctant because it is, it is such it, it can be such kind of a blunt instrument. But we do do that back. Um, and and you know, and so I think that uh, I think this you know certainly the Russian government knows um, that's in our arsenal. So we do do it. Okay, great. The last question. Sure. So I think that's a bit of a misnomer um, because, you know, so what happened in the war zones is that CIA certainly contracted, um, uh, in essence, what was, you know, uh, protective security details, you know, PSDs. And so, so we had, we had uh, companies such as Blackwater, but many others. Blackwater obviously has a, has a, a, a dark name, although their former CFO lives two rows down from me <laughs> in Vienna. See, that's why the chief of police has a TS clearance. Um, uh, but but ultimately, you know, the, the private private contractors um, were really important for some things that the U.S. government as a whole couldn't do, which was like you know providing uh, you know personal security for for agency officers or for the State Department. But the idea of kind of this you know a private private kind of secret army, I think, is something that's that's not accurate. Um, and uh, uh, certainly, there's been you know uh, uh, abuses committed by Blackwater over the years. But but I think that has been that that's a thing of the past, which is good. All right, the book is in the back. Oh, yeah. Mark, we back signing them. Thank you. All right, that was good. It's fun. I knew we were going to be in for a fabulous treat with this conversation. So thank you very much to both of you. I just Thanks. have a couple of last announcements. Oh sure. So uh, before we depart, I want to let you know about one last event, and that is March 30th. It's our International Educator of the Year Award. The reason I'm letting you know about this right now is because our keynote speaker is the former Chief of Disguise uh, at the CIA. So it is tied into this conversation tonight. I think it's going to be fabulous. Her name is Jana Mendez. And she will be joining us. She's a fabulous speaker. She actually co-authored the book uh, Argo. Well, the movie Argo was based on this book that she wrote. 
So please do come to that. And then also, for the book signing, if you wouldn't mind putting your mask back on when you purchase a book, we would really appreciate it. And then the last thing is we have a fabulous World Affairs Council tie for you. We gave one to David last fall when he spoke with us. So, and, and I'm wondering, where is your tie? <laughs> Thank you so much for coming this evening. See you next time. Thank you.